Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the Digital Workspace inner workings. This is very fancy. Cool. Yeah, we're we good to go. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, good. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just thinking about doing this in a studio for the first time, and I sit at home with with Heather in the US, and it's all um, it's all Microsoft Team calls. You know, there's, we have a very basic setup. Well, I mean, that is the essence of what you do, right? So yeah. you you're suggesting you can. I, I like it. Like I said, for one reason, one reason only. It takes away the work. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, I'm I'm the guy that like. Is there a blockage in the drain? Call a guy. Like I don't want to do it myself. Which, so. which is um. Oh, what was the name of that guy's book? Oh man. If, if you don't measure, you can't uh, manage it. What's his name? Paul Drucker. Oh Peter yeah. Drucker. Peter Drucker. Yeah. You're at this the most efficient um, executive. Mm. And he said, I've not read that. Oh, that's worth reading. Okay. Cool. Um, there's a very there's a part there which says you've got to work out your your cost. Yes. And if it's cheaper for someone else to do it, you yes. need them to do it. Yeah. And you focus on what's your your potential or whatever it is. So I know that to be true, theoretically, but I'll make up the time by like sitting on the couch watching a movie. Or <laughs> so you got to actually hobby, then yeah. you got to cash in the co- yeah yeah. <laughs> You got to cash in the cost. Hey? Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's, that's the trick. Yeah, because you, you save that time, and then you go, "Oh, it's a new series of discovery on Netflix." Yes, yes. Let's yes. just pump that out in seven yeah, hours. Which is pro- probably not the best use of that time. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. Well, welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. Do you want to give us a quick introduction to yourself so we've got it for our our episode? Yeah, geez, Ryan, thanks for the the opportunity to be on the show. Um, I used to run an agency called Cerebra, which focused on helping uh, big corporate brands navigate. The, what was then the emerging world of social media, both from an engagement and marketing perspective and then also from an internal communication and collaboration perspective. Um, I sold that business in 2013 to WPP and uh, I exited Cerebra in 2018. I went back to business school, uh, did a program around social business and social entrepreneurship actually uh, at the London School of Economics um, and then was planning on launching a new business uh, in the you know, kind of around leadership and digital transformation at the beginning of this year. And then obviously COVID happened. And so uh, I think a lot of ideas had um, the brakes put on. And uh, yeah, I've been doing quite a lot of work uh, during the year around research and developing new ideas and models, but decided to take a little bit of a breather while while we waited out and saw exactly what happened. And yeah, launched the podcast during the year. So yeah, <laughs> got, got a little bit busy at least. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, I've enjoyed your podcast. I've enjoyed some of your guests as well, because they are I don't want to say different because I mean that's, that sounds stupid, but but the topics you talk about cover so many varying things and, and things that I think about a lot, but I haven't found a source that that feeds me that information. So I've quite enjoyed your guests and especially your, your most recent one, the CEO um, internship, I think it was something like like that. You had like a school for or, ed, or educating people, the CEOs to. Yes, um, yes, absolutely, yeah. So that was Rowan. Yes. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I my problem actually. Which I think you're 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 complimenting, so I'll take it. But <laughs> my problem is that I have too broad a range of interests. Yep. Um, so that the the podcast is an excuse, I guess, to speak to a whole bunch of people. I'm very jealous of you, though, because you seem to know exactly what you want to talk about, and and are very deliberate about it. So I, I need to learn from your 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 approach. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think we all fake it very well. Indeed, indeed, yeah. isn't that the world of podcasting? Well, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I was talking to a guest this week, and she said, "Geez, how do you get these people to talk to us?" Well, it's very easy. You just ask them. Yeah. And you, get you send people. a lengthy, detailed email. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then they either say no, yeah, or they just start ignoring you, or they say yes, and then you end up with a guest. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is that? What is that sitcom? How I Met Your Mother. Yep. Remember yep. that naked man strategy that the dude had? So it's like, no, no. oh, okay. So I hope this is not like not safe for work. But um, <laughs> the dude's strategy was like, he's like, I'm not a particularly good looking guy. I'm not very successful. So my strategy is if I'm dating somebody, I go back to their place. I just take off my clothes and sit on the couch. He says, the worst <laughs> thing that happens is you get a no. But every now and again, you get a yes. So there you go. I have heard that. Yeah, it's the yeah. naked man strategy. There so, you go. so you said you were going to go into digital transformation, but would that be more from a social media angle or what were you angling on there? Yes, actually not at all from a social media perspective. I think what happened in the the latter part of my journey in Cerebra is I started hearing this phrase digital transformation being um, used more and more and prolifically um, and very broadly. 
And I think similarly to when social media gained prominence, there was a sense that it was it was kind of a substitute for everything that felt new. Mm. Um, if it was new or emergent or interesting or progressive, we just slapped the, the label digital transformation mm. on it. And one of the dangers of doing that is that it begins to mean nothing. Um, and I started thinking about, well, what does it actually mean? What what do we mean when we say digital transformation? And, and I guess the most logical way to figure that out is to strip it down into its constituent parts. And so I spent actually quite a surprising amount of time doing that and matching that against what are the prominent or predominant definitions in play at the moment. And what I've realized is that I think what we really mean by digital transformation is the ability to adapt perpetually as an organization uh, in the face of largely complex and unpredictable circumstances and, and, and more so complex and unpredictable. I think that that's what we're realizing is that there's an accelerating rate of unpredictability and complexity that we need to operate in and around and through. And, and our ability to adapt to that has got a lot to do with the culture that we create, the leadership style that we have, the tools that we select. And all of that, I think, is embodied in this idea of digital transformation. But that, by implication, means that there's a very specific style of leadership and culture that lends itself towards that strategy. And if you don't have that, <laughs> if you're not lucky enough to be in a business that's like that, does that mean you're doomed? Um, and that's what I've spent time thinking about. And the answer is no, of course. There are many organizations that don't necessarily have the privilege of that kind of leadership or culture, but have adapted in different ways. Mm. And so the exploration has been, what are those called then? What are those things? And how can we develop a way of thinking about them all so that regardless of what level of maturity or adaptability our organization is subject to right now, we have a way forward. Yep. We have a way to survive. Yep. Um, yeah. It's interesting you say that the leadership and the culture and the tools. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a technology term for that, which is people process and um, techno people process technology. Mm. Um, and I remember reading when we, when we first went into lockdown in the UK, that somewhere saying that 30 to 40% of all businesses will shut down mm. for good, thanks to this pandemic. Um, but no one really extrapolated to why. And I think the why there is because most of those businesses weren't geared up to do the switch or the pivot to using tools, technology, you know, technology tools to be able to do their business. And they weren't able to transform, use it, you know, all the puns, um, their, their business processes from being in the office or, or presence-based to being virtual-based. So, you, you know, you obviously see a lot of people that were um, doing, using like my, my mother-in-law teaches a school with, with mm. kids with, with disabilities and learning difficulties, et cetera. You know, she had to close the school down, and she became a Zoom teacher. Mm. You know, now she's spending ten to twelve hours a day teaching classes the old the old way, but on yeah. Zoom instead yeah. of that whole thing being refit to become a more digital mechanism where kids were doing their assignments through an app or something like that. She had, yeah. you know, she was going the old way, so it was almost the brute force way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, is, is that the kind of problem you want to solve? Almost help the brick and mortar become digital. So I think that's one component of it. Um, one component of it is taking what we already do and digitizing it. But yep. but I'm more inclined to refer to that as digitization or digitalization. The problem with that strategy, which is a very much um, outside in putting digital layers on existing business processes or existing strategies or operations, or the way we do things just made digital. Um, mm. uh, you know, the most superficial examples are a biometric sensor at your reception desk instead of a, a, a sign-in book. Yeah, The problem there is that it doesn't speak to the underlying layer or philosophy or approach to change that your business has. Yep. And if you have a business that's already got broken processes, already got endemic issues that are deeper than just deeper than just operational, mm. right? Slapping digital layers on top of that isn't going to fix them. And I think sometimes vendors have and understandably so, have made clients believe that their tools are these magical fix-all panaceas. You know, just if you just buy the right ERP, if you just get the right mm. CRM system, if you just have the right website provider, if you just launch an e-commerce store, if you just get yourself on social media, it'll solve your problems. And it actually does, in, in many instances, quite the opposite. It exacerbates existing issues. It almost amplifies them. Mm. Right? So I think when we talk about the businesses that that – were, and this is what's quite interesting. I mean, not not wanting to in any way, shape, or form minimize the human tragedy of the pandemic. There, 
it, it is an experiment of sorts in how businesses adapt because you, you're applying the same variable almost to every organization around the world and then measuring how mm. their responses were accordingly. And what's interesting to me is that obviously there's a set of businesses that no matter how good or bad or progressive or um, archaic or um, people-oriented or, or technology-oriented, they were, they were just going to struggle. Yep. You know, if you're an airline or a travel business and a pandemic hits, it doesn't matter who you are, you're, you're in trouble. Yep. Um, so there's, there's, there's a sort of a, a, a component of the market that I don't think could have done anything to change their fate yep. as such. But then there's two other very interesting groups. There's organizations that were, were expected to adapt well had all the tools in place to adapt well, had, mm. should have by rights been able to take advantage of changing customer behavior or a changing um, circumstance or a digitization of engagement or whatever and struggled, really did badly. Yeah. And then there was another group who should have done badly, but they did really well. Mm. And almost inevitably, when you look at the common denominators between those two, what 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 is common between organizations that were well positioned and did badly and organizations that were poorly positioned and did really well, the common denominator seems to be leadership oriented. Mm. It's it's about the attitude that the most influential and most powerful people in that organization had towards the changing circumstance. And that's what I'm really interested in. I, I'm trying to, that, that for me is not a feeling. It's not a, oh, it's a specific type of person or person. There's something very real that's happening there, very practical and very deliberate that I think is worth us understanding because it takes the conversation a little bit away from the technology and the tools mm. and into those things are enablers. But if you don't have the right circumstance to deploy them, they're almost always going to fail. Yeah. Yep. You know, you're spot on. I mean, I, I've, sat on the technology side for a long time, trying to bring it into business to solve problems. And I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking of examples of my career, my failures, mm. as I like to call them, where we've brought in technology to solve a problem, but we actually what we've done is make them fail faster. Mm. Yeah. And more expensively. Yeah. Um, you know, I was thinking about some marketing processes that we automated. Um, the tooling actually wasn't the problem. It was, sure. we, we took their process, but no one actually said, is this process actually the right process? Yeah. You know, if you look at, and, and if you ever read the book, The Goal, one of my favorite ones to that. always okay. sort of throw people to read. Yeah. Um, he gave an example in the book, and it's, it's a nonfiction fictional book. So he's written a story about a plant manager running a factory. Got you. And this guy's running a factory, and he's got three months to keep it going, otherwise the big corporate's going to shut it down. Mm -hmm. And he meets his sort of um, old school teacher, whatever, who, who helps him out. And one of the examples he gives him is that sometimes the sequence of the problem, the sequence of the process is the problem. Hmm. And, he's, and he's taking his kid away on a, on a, on a scout trip. And he realizes while they're walking up this long hill that the problem is they've got the fat guy at the back because he's the slowest and the fast guy at the front. And he can't keep everyone together. Hmm. In okay. order to keep them all together, he puts the fat guy in front. Yes. Now, if, yes. You, if you bring that into software development or something like that, you've got to find the things that are creating your biggest dependencies and the most comp and, and need the most focus and put those. Solve for that first. So, solve yeah. them with everything trailing behind that because that'll give you your, your sort of momentum. Hmm. Because often what happens is everyone leaves something to the end, which will usually be something like testing or integration work or whatever it is, because those are the harder things to do. Yes. Um, and, 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 and I think that's, if you look at the pandemic, in some senses, is almost the problem in, in the, the leadership there. Is someone's made the decision to, to sort of stick to the easy, easy path or the way they've done things before where they're comfortable and not really look at, well, the game's all changed now. We've, mm. we've got to make some tough decisions and maybe, maybe – you know, throw, throw some things away. And I mean that in, in, in the nicest way because it's most probably people um, in order to, to pivot the business, to keep the business going. Because if we keep the business going, then we keep it available to, for when things get better to bring those people back or, or scale the business appropriately in a new channel. Uh, and I think that's your people that were going to fail that, that turned it around and, carried, and actually made a bigger business. I think those are the kind of mentalities that, that, that fuel that. Yeah, certainly. Um but I think the part of that thinking that we don't talk about enough, and I think you've alluded to it there, but I've had a lot of fun articulating this and then testing it with, with different audiences, is I think it's got a lot to do with that leader, he, he or she, their, their time frame for value creation. 
So what I mean mm. by that is if all you're interested in is maximizing value in the next year, the decisions that you make are going to be hugely biased towards the short term um, and, and towards your own or whoever it is that you're trying to make that money for, create that value for in the short term, that, that gain, right? If your time frame for value creation is 10 years, obviously your problems become immeasurably more difficult to solve because of the, the unpredictable yeah. variables in, in that mix. But this, this paradox of there's not, you know, there's not a well-meaning, sensible corporate leader out there that would admit that they're only interested in value creation in the next six or three months. They'll all talk about wanting to sustain their organizations forever and create value for communities and mm. wanting to be as you know, um, inclusive and, and uh, you know, customer and human-centric as possible. These are all the words that we use. But in truth, if we're honest, there's quite a big gap between what we say we want to be in terms of an organization and mm. how we measure our ability to do that. Mm. And that there, I think, is is the essence of the problem when it comes from, when we talk about transformation of any type, mm. and I'm not, this is not just about digital transformation. I think any, if you're merging two cultures together, if you are talking about economic transformation in, in a context like South Africa, the, your ability to execute on that effectively and meaningfully and to create the kind of organization, as you rightly point out, that could later on maybe expand its its mm. value um, network. Yeah. You have to take a long view. Yeah. Have you ever done any research on the Japanese businesses? I haven't, no. So, And something I heard this week, um, there are a lot of businesses that have been around, for, they're multi-generational businesses. Yes. And, and their approach is never to be short-term. Yes. So they're always thinking long-term. And I haven't done any research on something. It's something I'll put in my notes to, re to read up on. But that seems to be their cultural difference to a, say, westernized business. Yes. A westernized business has got a CEO in for two, three, maybe five years, depending on how good they are. Yes. But they tend to cycle them out pretty quickly. And most of those CEOs are really driven by their quarterly reviews. You yes. Know, what's the stock price doing? And then what's the, all that kind of stuff. But the, the Japanese business, and I'm being very generalized here, it tends to be family businesses, multi-generational, and they're hiring people in, but they're keeping this long, long, long-term view on it. Yes. And that's why they're a thousand-year-old businesses. Yeah, I've got I've got two case studies that I look at that I need to maybe look deeper into to understand what cultural drivers are. So the one is Fuji, and yeah. I look at it from a digital innovation perspective, their creation of or their diversification of product lines, creating beauty products as an example when they're a digital imaging business is a really interesting way to use their existing skill sets, influence supplier relationships to create value in a new frontier. Yeah. Um, and I use that as a case study of one of the ways of sustaining beyond your existing business model, especially if it's under immediate threat. And this, the second one is Recruit Japan, which I think is a really interesting digital transformation case study. But there are a couple of common denominators, I think, to, as you mentioned, these they are, for lack of a better phrase, um, empire-style businesses mm. in their scale, yep. in their diversity, and that's in the best possible use of that word, not in a in a derogatory sense. Um, and I think there's a there's a, a lot of fascinating lessons to learn about what you're actually trying to create. Because I think we get stuck in thinking about what type of business are you, mm. and and what type of business are you is a lot to do with what sector you're in. Yeah. <laughs> and that, I don't get the sense that they're thinking about being a technology business even or being a uh, manufacturing or retail FMCG business. It's more about what type of organization are you mm. and the product or the offering is almost secondary or, or even tertiary to that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you make me think of Kodak. Yes, exactly. Fuji. I mean, Kodak was, and they were, it was Kodak or Fuji. Those are the two guys you went hundred percent. Yeah. And Kodak's nowhere to be seen now. Um, well, well, up until very recently, well, cause they, I think they've, they've enjoyed a, a, a sudden surge in share price because of their involvement in some of the, um, uh, vaccination projects. Oh, okay. Yes, I yeah, I think All they right. won a contract. and Yeah, but exactly that. Um, the fact that they're still around, mm. the fact that they're still doing something yeah. <laughs> and are able to pivot into health mm. or healthcare is, is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, what you're sort of talking about is something that I've never really got my head around either, to be honest, 
is is that, um, and I've looked at it in the corporates that I've worked in. I've worked sort of corporates. I've worked in small business, etc. And 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 you can almost see it when you when you join a team or join a group. You either got that that I don't want to say visionary leader because that sounds really um, wrong, but you've got someone who's got a drive, got a got a, f- a feel for where things need to go, and they're almost conducting an orchestra, and mm. they can pull in the the instruments they need. But they've also almost taken a, the growth mindset to another level where they're not they don't feel like they're hamstrung by the bureaucracy of an organisation. Because I think some of these organisations, once you go past a certain number, let's say it's a thousand people, a lot of the people that are hired thereafter are to manage the organisation, not to actually drive oh, yeah. the value of the business. Yeah, and and it's almost trying to you know you're trying to bring it down underneath that level so you get more flexibility, more of a startup mentality, but within the corporate budgets and background. And yeah, I don't know if that's what you've seen as well or or something similar. Yeah, you again, you've picked up on two really interesting topics that I think we could do an entire show around because I think they are are that big and that important. I think the first one is around this this narrative, especially in Western corporations, around size and scale and, and bigger is almost always better. And we mm. define the success of our organizations by the number of square meters that we lease and the number of people that are in those buildings. Um, we used to do this in the advertising industry all the time. You know, How, how big is your business? Mm. Well, we employ 280 people. I mean, it's got nothing to do with its success or the sustainability of that business. You should be talking about, you know, compound annual growth rates and margin. And those are are the metrics that really matter. Um, I'd rather have a business with 10 people that that makes a decent amount of money and is, you know, kind of, although if if we take a more complex view of things, it's nice to to focus on job creation and it's important to do that as well. So, yeah, okay. I'm going on all sorts of tangents. Mm. The second thing is, well, just to that earlier point, is that I think there's a little bit of work to be done around um, what is the optimal size of a business unit. And I think the military does this very well. They, you know, they, they compartmentalize operational units in a very efficient and effective way to, to get the best results out of the, um, the, the chain of command. And I don't, I think over the last couple of years, hierarchies have started to get a really bad rap. And I think it's a pity because I think we are, we're naturally predisposed towards hierarchies. I think we, most human beings quite enjoy being in a structure and in a, in a, but but the mistake we made in business is that we turned hierarchies into, into a power dynamic. Mm. If your hierarchy is all about accountability, then it's, then it's quite a useful thing. Yeah. Um, if the person up on the top of the pile is the person willing to take the most responsibility for the decisions that the organization is making or the direction that it's going in, and sure, they're getting perks for that, but that's directly proportional to the amount of value they're creating, then I'm all for hierarchies. Yep. In fact, you know, let's let's take advantage of that. So I think the first thing is around the optimal size of a of, you know, and I don't know if you've read any of Robin Dunbar's work, but he's done work around um network effects and, and, and the optimal size of a community to get the best results yeah. out of the relationships and the interplay between the relationships. Yeah, I, think I think there's a number that I do know of his, yeah, which is 150 people. hundred percent. Yeah. So that's Dunbar's number. And yeah. yeah. So, so I'm, I'm interested in exploring that. And there's an organization that I'm, I'm connected to called Thompson Harrison in, in the UK, um, a boutique leadership development um, offering that do exceptional work in this space around organizational design. And they, they spend quite a lot of time working with Robin Dunbar to test this, um, to test this number in, in practicality. And it just keeps coming up. It's interesting that I think the average number of friends on Facebook for a Facebook user, an active Facebook user is very close to that number. I think it's 162. Okay. Uh, that could be completely coincidental, but I think there's something to be said around the, optimal size of a social network and especially in an organizational and effectiveness uh, um, context. The second point I think that you brought up that I'd like to pick up on is the difference between a, a growth minded motivational leader Mm. and a growth minded motivational culture. So I think, you know, you and I have worked in organizations that are extremely complex, multifaceted, um, sometimes even internally competitive um combative yeah combative is a more appropriate word but you get a sense that there are these pods within there that just Mm. get stuff done and sometimes it feels like 17 percent of the business is responsible for you know 93 percent of the business's success and and it's almost always got to do with a you know kind of how information flows in that pod 
people's ability to make decisions, accountability, those things that we're talking about uh, already. Yeah. And that's got to do with the, the kind of, and, and this is, this is the thing that I think we don't talk about enough um, when it comes to, to leadership in the corporate context. It's not necessarily about being an extraordinary figurehead. If we look at somebody like, um, let me think of a good, good example here. Um, What is our friend from Discovery's name? Uh, Adrian Gore. Adrian Gore. Oh, I kept thinking a Andrew Golding from Pam Golding. I don't know what's <laughs> in my mind. It's holiday brain. Yeah, yeah. Adrian Gore, I think, is an exceptional figurehead, but he's also done a very good job of in, in inculcating a culture of shared value. Can you, can that, you explain inculcating, please? Yeah, it's embodying or productizing ah, okay. some of what makes him him. Yeah. And having it exist in the room without him being there, hmm. being adopted by other people. It's, it's the best version of a cult. It's, 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 the, it's what makes religion so powerful. Yeah, it's, it's right. the Steve Jobs of source and field, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, and I think a leader's ability to codify that and to, you know, for lack of a better word, productize it and have people adopt it willingly Mm. That is the definition of transformational leadership for me, because then you are you are affecting the type of work that the organization is doing. You're creating change. You're creating value, even when you're not there. Yeah. Um, it's one thing being a great leader when you're in the room. Yeah. It's another thing being a great leader when you're not. I, I'm, I'm so so. I'm thinking of an example, and and a couple of things that you said there: decision making. Um, I think the other thing was, but but it's empowerment. If you if you mm. can empower your people to make decisions. Um, and they know what they know the parameters or the V they got to st stay within that they'll make those decisions. They get more confident, which means you as a leader have less to worry about because you don't want to be sitting there making decisions for everyone. Yeah, I mean you'll be exhausted. But I remember working for a guy that that he actually would send out his his like sort of list once in a while. And one of the things was the thirteenth item was do not use my name to get this done. Hmm. And if you can do all the other things, then then that that because what became a problem is that his name would be used as a way to get something done. You know. Oh, he said I must do this. So you need to you need to pull hmm. the process apart because I need to. Yeah. I've got permission, um, because it does create that sort of problem sometimes. You got to yeah. you know strong leader. It's really interesting, yeah. And then he, you know, people adopted for the wrong the, the wrong part of it, not the right part of it, which was an interesting thing. So, in your experience, what makes an individual empowered? Um, I uh, hmm. don't have a quick definition of it, but I would probably say a comfort level of making mistakes and being able to recover from them. Because I think that's the biggest thing that, that, that I've struggled with and other people struggle with where you're running a team and, you know, especially when you're, and I wrote in my journals on this, when, you know, when you first start managing a team, your biggest worry is, are you telling people the wrong things to do? Mm. Or are you making decisions that are actually going to cost you later on? Mm. You know, so there's this fear of failure all the time. But it's actually okay to fail, provided you are realizing that you're failing and that you can actually correct the path. And that's where you need to, you know, be a big person and, and step back and say, actually, you know, I said we'd build this thing. Now we actually make a mistake. We need to stop and pivot. Yeah, and I mean, I'd argue if you're not failing, you're not doing your job. Well, well exactly. But, but I think that shouldn't be the focus. Yeah. Uh, there's a little bit of a <laughs> but, but <laughs> worry about glorifying failure. But yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but that's the problem. And, yeah. and, and you also end up in these blame cultures where, you know, you make a mistake. And I've sat in meetings where I've said, oh, well, you need to do this. And six weeks later, someone said, oh, well, you know, hmm. you really screwed that up. I was like, well, no one wanted to make a decision. So I made one. Yeah. And happy to screw it up. And yeah. we did something and, and, Yes, it, might, it may, may have cost us, you know, six weeks, but we've learned something out of it because now we know not to let Ryan make a decision by himself. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever the joke is at the time. But but I think that's the, the point is that, um, you know, sort of to answer your question, I think it's that, that fear of failure, getting past that piece, you know, a, a, almost a, be an experimenter, which I think where we are now, you talked about timelines and, and sort of time to value. I think there's definitely a... a, a push now to experiment more, experiment faster, get results quicker to experiment again. And, um, and I read this recently a book called Lean Startup. Mm. And he talks about it a lot. You know, you got to just keep doing that and measure and Iteration, improve measure yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's that's what I think this, the, the leadership that I've seen that's strong are prepared to allow you to fail, are prepared to allow you to experiment and are looking for your results so they don't have to go and explore it to help them make a decision while they see the bigger picture because you don't always get the whole picture. Anyway. Mm. Um, and I think those things together give me the, the answer. So I, I, I've obsessed over this because I, I hear a lot of people talking about how do you empower staff? 
Yep. People are empowered, enabled, you know, and it's used a lot, especially by vendors as a sales point. Yeah. I think the one thing we don't think about enough is um, access to the right information. Yeah. So I think the first thing, if you want to empower someone, give them access to the right information. And I think there's two two important words there. Neither of them are information. <laughs> the one is access and the yeah. other one is correct or useful or right, you know. Yeah, like yeah. Because you and I will know there is a plethora of information available to almost anyone in, in modern organizations, whether it's external or, or kind of primary first person information or data. And very little of it is actually usable or useful or insightful yeah. or, or practical. Yeah. So I think the first challenge of an empowered organization is how efficiently does information flow through the business and how useful is it when it arrives at its destination? And there's a level of probably truth to that information. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Much, yeah. know, has it been tainted by an agenda? Exactly. Exactly. And it can only be useful if it's authentic and true. And yeah. yeah. And the second thing is once I have the information, hmm. and again, this is obviously material, this is exactly what you're saying, Yeah. can I make a decision with it? Yeah. And I think that's linked to my perceptions about failure in the business, my perceptions around blame and responsibility. I can't make a decision if those are the things I'm worried about. It doesn't matter how good my information is. And I'm convinced that if you were able to somehow measure the effectiveness of the flow of information through a business and the efficacy of the quality of that information when it arrives at its destination and the decision-making quotient yep. of the individual when they get it, you'd be able to predict how disruptable that business is because I'm convinced that's the thing that makes a business disruptible. So you talk about the military. Yeah. And, and the American military is probably the one that most people think of when you talk about the military. Sure. They did something during the Afghanistan conflict, which was quite inspiring. So they have this hierarchy. You have six divisions and seven, if you count space force. Mm. Um, Let's not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but they've got these six divisions. Now, they are working the hierarchical way, which obviously means if a piece of information comes in, goes all the way up the chain of command, mm -hmm. someone makes a decision, comes all the way back down. But they were fighting against insurgents and or whatever the you know the guerrillas were, who don't work that way. Sure, they work in your traditional well, traditional now, but a very small virtual team of people that work together sell. Yeah, and they make decisions on the on the ground. Yeah, networks, and networks, and they fire off and they do what they have to do. And the problem is obviously that the U.S. military could not contend with the sp with the speed and the agility of their enemy. Yeah, so they changed their whole structure, and they now run a totally agile mm. environment. I don't mean agile in the sense of you know two week sprints and all that nonsense. Yeah, but but they have a call once a day for an hour, hour and a half with all the people that need to be involved. So all six divisions, from the um, admiralty or generals down to obviously not privates, but they'll have whatever, and they'll talk for an hour about what's going on. And they will spin out whatever topics they need to talk about to go and make a decision and come back to that forum. Mm. And they've they've cut their whole decision making process down into well, from weeks sometimes down to to hours. Mm. Interesting. And and that's how they think they got the the handle on Afghanistan because they could now be as responsive to an event. And while they're obviously on this call, you know, something could happen, and all the right people to make the decisions are there. Yeah. And also the people that if you're on that call, you are considered a decision maker or, a, or you're empowered already. And, and sometimes you ask the question, how do you empower them? Sometimes you actually have to say to someone, you are empowered. Yeah. You know, up to five grand, you can make a decision. Yeah. Up to 100,000, you can make a decision. Yeah. Just do it. Yeah. Um, don't, but don't I think the important it. point that you make there is that you have to give them a parameter to work with. Yes. yes. If, you, if you're going to empower people, give them, give them the outside lines, you know, color, do whatever you like inside that space. Yeah. But, but, you know, preferably don't go outside that space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you get, you, you learn and trust. I mean, you've read Tim Ferriss's four hour work week. Yeah, yeah. So his one biggest thing about getting out of his business was he had to empower his people sure. to make decisions. Sure. You know, if this customer is unhappy up to two fifty, just give him the product for free or whatever, whatever yeah. his examples, yeah. but it's the same thing. I think that's what culture is. Yeah. I think culture is the space you create for people to play in. I really do. I think yep. that's it's the parameters within which you can do what you need to do to be effective and be creative and create value. But but without those parameters, I, I, I worked with a business coach one day that described it almost as a river. It's the banks. Yep. You know, and then the river's gonna change and you know, 
so on and so yeah, forth. Rocks and, and stuff. Hundred percent. But crocodiles. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, but 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 defining the boundaries, defining the parameters, is is such a critical function of leadership. So so what do you find frustrating then in that? So so you define the boundaries and and you've got this path, and the path we know is going to be variable, up and down hills and all that kind of stuff. Well, what I find frustrating is that two things, I guess, is in my position now yeah. uh, is how few leaders see, and I mean leaders across sectors, not yeah. just in the corporate sector, I mean in the public sector as well, even in the impact space, see their role as doing that. And secondly, how many people think of the river like a dam <laughs> um, and that, you know, they don't they don't think in the long term i just i think yeah. there is an absolute the real pandemic is an obsession with short term thinking and that's one of the reasons why the pandemic was such a big thing is because we, you know nobody expects a spanish inquisition we don't we don't think that long term we don't think about the positive. how can we how can we be adaptable to almost any sort of change hmm. and i suppose there is a limit to what you can do and how you can think when it comes to that question because you can become so obsessed with change that you don't actually do the work that you're supposed to do um but i think i think that's the if you take a 10 year view genuinely sincerely how can you not consider some of those things yeah well i mean you, you know if you read any of the books that that came out around the same time as the well, say they came out, but they, they became top of mind because of the pandemic. Yeah, all these epidemiology books and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm. They were predicting this sort of thing for for a hundred years. Yeah, I mean, in fact, we probably had you know a virus every year. Yeah, we have. Bad. We haven't had it combined with an information virus at the same time, but Cor yeah, that, that's what's made this particularly um, insidious. But I think if you if you've taken adapting seriously, changing the way that you work to being predominantly remote shouldn't be anywhere near as painful as it's been for some organizations yeah. and for the individuals in those organizations. That's yeah. the key thing. It's not painful. Very few organizations struggle with remote work. Yeah, It's it's the individuals that have suddenly got to adapt to an environment that they're not used to working in, to a way of working that they're not accustomed to, to mm. tools that they haven't been exposed to or taught. Or that's Those are the people that have really well, struggled. I, I, it's why the business processes that don't work either. Mm. You know, your physical presence to do something. Yeah, this process should have been changed. It yeah. always be a virtual process. Sudden reminder that maybe you don't need a meeting for all of those things. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Certainly you, not an hour long one. Yeah. To, to expand on your your dam piece, I mean, my my frustration is is when people think of it as a pond mm. or a puddle, mm. and they don't realize that they're actually in the middle of a, of rapids. Mm. Um, and that they're not willing to push the boundaries that they're given because I think there's also a level of of contention you need to have where. And maybe this is where ambition comes in, yeah. Um, where someone says, "Well, you know, you've given me responsibility for this stuff, but if you gave me responsibility for that stuff too, and they come together, I can do more with it." Um, whereas I think a lot of people are quite happy if they put in a little, their little box and yeah. it's in their box, and you need to sort of push their box along with you. Or pull them along. Look, in a big enough organization, I think you're going to have those types of people, mm. and I think it's important for us to recognize that is that there are some people who want to work that way who want to work in quite small defined parameters and they want to be extremely effective in those parameters. And that's the way they, they, they create value. And I think that's got to be all right. I've, I've learned that there are some types of people that are fueled by tenacity and mm. fueled by ambition and others that find those spaces in other parts of their lives and would rather at work do the work that they've been paid to do in the time that they've been paid to do it and then go and that's okay especially in big organizations yeah. it's different than a you know sort of very um competitive startup you know silicon valley type environment of course you're going to have less of those types of characters they're not going to survive in that environment but i think in the you know in the rest of the world <laughs> normal business there are going to be a lot of people who are just like that and i think it's okay i think we need to make provision for that what I think you're saying is that when you've given people permission mm. to do that and they don't, something else is going on. Mm. That's a sure sign that there is something culturally um, devoid, something venomous in the system that is stopping people from taking that step. And I realized in Cerebra, we, we I mean, one of our 
fundamental habits, we called them habits, our values, was to, to take initiative. I, you know, we were the kind of business that really rewarded it until I realized that I was subconsciously um, stopping that from happening because I was rewarding only certain types of initiative that suited my agenda and ignoring uh, types of initiative that were still important but that I wasn't recognizing as being as important. So I was I was actually the insidious factor there. My biases towards certain types of initiative were the problem. And I had to learn how to redefine what we meant by initiative in order to reward all types of, mm. of tenacity. And yeah, so I mean, if people aren't then being tenacious and aren't taking initiative, you, there's something else in the system that might be broken. But I think you make another point that I, well, I, I want to expand on your point because I think that there's a, you, you talk about small ponds and small, small, um, small spaces. I think a lot of leaders have realized through the pandemic, and I mean leaders of, of big organizations, that they can't think of their, their, their businesses as closed systems. Yeah. Um, they've got to take a far more systemic uh, view of things. And that means acknowledging that there are many more communities um, individuals, patterns <laughs> that are impacted by the work that you do and the decisions that you make. And that, again, makes it immeasurably hard, harder to be a leader. But, but I think the type of leadership that gets that is the type of leadership that's creating really valuable organizations. So when, when you mean that, I mean, in my head, I'm thinking about, you know, Microsoft, who, when Satya Nadella took over, went from being a tower-based you know, company. Mm -hmm. We do Microsoft products, and and our partners do the extensions, and but we're we're our own thing. Um, to become an interchange company, where they mm -hmm. now integrate with everyone, they're running Linux on the desktop, and you know all the things they would never touch ever. You know, under Bowman or under Gates. Mm. Um, now they are part of everything. They integrate into everything. Well, that's mm. their their play. Is that what you mean, or do you mean something? I, I certainly think that's part of it. I think, but I think also it's got to do with. I think you make certain types of decisions when you believe that your business lives and or succeeds and fails depending exclusively on what happens inside its four walls. Yeah. And I just don't think you can afford to do that anymore. I think the customer's changing so much. I think the political and social political environment changes so much. Culture is a massive factor. If you don't think of your business in terms of the system that it operates in and, and the different levers that are key – to that, mm. you, you're handicapping yourself immediately. So there's a certain amount of literacy that I think modern leaders must have when it comes to those systems and those different dependencies and the world around us. And I mean, can you think about a modern corporation without thinking about climate change, not from a compliance perspective, mm. but from an actual, this is one of the factors we have to think about when it comes to creating value over the next five to 10 years? I imagine it's something you have to at least have a mm. foundational level of literacy in. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, I was listening to um, the guy who's still, guy, he's, a, he's a transgender, so he's a lady or guy, I can't remember what he referred to himself as, um, who started Cirrus uh, XM, mm. which is the satellite um, company. And, and, that, and he said, every business that we take on has got to be carbon neutral. And in fact, he built mm. some building that's, that's magnificent, it's huge is the biggest building that's been, because carbon neutral, in fact, is carbon, um, it gives back into the environment now. Oh, wow. So there's solar panels everywhere and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Carbon negative, yeah. Yeah, carbon, I was going to say it's a positive negative, but yeah, exactly. And, and and that's almost the mentality you need to have for some of these big corporates. And some of these corporates are, that have been avoiding the the problem for so long. Yeah. Um, and they've been trying to buy it with easier solutions. You know, do they go and pay for, you know, trade someone else's credits for their own, for their own damage that they're causing? almost like to make it feel better mm. as opposed to actually solving the problem. There's a great uh, quote, an Irish poet, whose name I've forgotten. David White, who I saw speaking at a leadership conference actually one day, but he was speaking about conversation. He said the conversations that we don't want to have land up having us, right? Um, you could apply the same sort of thinking to this where you go, the system, the system change that we don't want to think about eventually impacts on us one way or another. You're either prepared yeah. for it uh, or you're not, but there's just so much happening in the world around us that we can't afford really not to think about it. I mean, 
one of the business projects that I'm involved in at the moment is a social media crisis reputation business. And it exists specifically because of this problem of yep. people assuming that this, the what's happening outside their four walls can never impact on them or assuming that, you know, you look around it, it's a little bit like the, the, the smoker who's like the cancer will never happen to me, you know, but mm. you, you know, you're smoking a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the same as a lot of these businesses that I've worked in where they said, you know, we don't really work from home or you work from home on the extreme occasion, you know, plumbers mm. coming or whatever mm. it is, but they never geared the business up yeah. to be yeah. a business continuity business. Mm. And, and those are the same businesses now that have been through a pandemic where they've had to send everyone home. They had to go and buy every laptop they could find regardless of what they could get. Yeah. They hadn't planned for it. And, yeah. you know, the cost of their people not working. Prohibitive. Yeah. Um, you know, forget furloughs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, they, exactly that smoker analogy will never happen to us. We'll never have to worry about this. Yeah, until you do. Until you do. Yeah. So um, there was something else that you mentioned I wanted to go back to, which was um, around the people and, and their their ability to work. I mean, have you looked much into their experience of working and, and beyond sort of, you know, does the laptop work and all that kind of stuff, but, but like the, the mental side of it or, or the change piece, I guess? Ryan, beyond the beyond the discussion around how behaviors or productivity is affected by a focus on outcomes as opposed to in, inputs, yeah. I haven't really spent a hell of a lot of time on this. I'm, not, I'm certainly not an expert in um, remote work or how individuals respond to different environments. But I do know that it's very difficult to run an effective and sustainable business, an adaptable business today if you judge people's contribution purely on inputs. Mm. Are you saying, what do you mean hours or do you mean? Yeah. The, the amount of time I spend at my laptop. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just think it's a useless metric, mm. uh, especially today. And, and I see, I can, you know, I'm level, aware of a level of hypocrisy in that because I ran an advertising agency that does that almost on a daily basis and ask people to fill in timesheets that are indicative only of, the amount of time that they put in, but that's that's a function of the agency business model, which is certainly not without its critics and, and problems. Um, me being one of them, I do think that that the most org interesting organisations today are those that have figured out ways to mobilise people in the creation of really interesting outputs, and again. You can't do that unless you have efficient flow of information yeah. and, you know, autonomy and decision-making capability. It just keeps coming back to that. Yeah. Um, if you if you if you can create that kind of environment, that kind of permission, then I think you can create people can work mm. from anywhere. Yeah. I think the the other you know there's other topics around the blending of work and life and people, I think, approaching work quite differently in terms of slightly less focus on you know spending three decades of your life working your you know your fingers to the bone and then eventually taking a break when you're too old and too tired to really enjoy it and i think there's a lot of people that are certainly of the privileged set that have tried to redesign the way they think about work so that it complements their lifestyle and so that mm. they can live with a degree of flexibility and enjoyment while they still can take advantage of it but beyond that, I'm not much of an expert. In no, and that's what I wondered because it, it is that hours versus results mindset. I think it's a, I think it's the biggest part of it. Yeah. Um, I think if you if you are basing your, your how you value people exclusively on what work they're able to produce, not time they're able to put in, you can design any type of work environment uh, off that basis. Yeah, it becomes very easy to do from there. Yeah, it's, it's almost going to the integrated working concept, which, mm. which you know, you can go and see your kids at school and you can still do, um, you know, the work you need to put out. I think the challenge, obviously, is if we're working remotely or, or flexibly, is these calls we have. Get I mean, I don't know if you send calls all day, but, but a lot of my friends do. And, and you spend your whole day on the phone and you actually haven't done any work yet because you having meetings for, for yeah. meetings and meetings. Again, which is not unlike the typical working day. Yeah. Uh, the, the problem there is that you, you're placing the value on the amount of people that were in the meeting and the time they spent mm. in that meeting instead of what decisions were made or, yeah. So again, that's that's an organizational challenge. It's a it's a culture challenge. It's an objectives challenge. Um, 
no sensible person participates in that if they know that it's counter counterintuitive to the thing that they're being measured on. Mm. But if you've been measured on how much time you spend in meetings and how many emails you answered, then it's easy to do that. <laughs> so what do you think 221 is going to bring for us? I am reluctant to make any predictions about anything ever again. Um, 2020 taught me uh, never to do that. Um, I think Spurs will hopefully finish in the top six <laughs> of the Premier League table. Um, beyond that, I haven't got a clue. I, I, do, I don't know. I think, I, think, I think it'll bring a lot of changed attitudes towards work, both from the perspective of the employer and the employee. I think it's got some exciting, uh, fast-tracked uh, technology opportunities. I think we've, we've, we've jumped ahead three or four years in, in our understanding of what's possible with these technologies. And that I think we'll see a nice big, uh, movement towards some consolidation in that space and, and maybe even a new disruptor in, in the workplace collaboration space. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm excited to get past 2020 and see what, what, what's possible next year. Hopefully less pandemics. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, at, at least down here in the South, it's uh, it seems to be a bit easier, but up in the UK, it looks a little bit harder. Yeah. Look, US. I think it might just be a function of weather, but um, yeah, our numbers are not great either. So yeah, I, I don't know. So um, I, I think, yeah, I've 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 been fluctuating between thinking that the world will change forever and the world won't change at all, depending on human nature. But I do think that there's certain things that we will rethink fundamentally, and a lot of it has got to do with um, human interaction, behavior, you know, social setups, um, hygiene. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, that's a good one. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be exciting to see. And, and, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that 2021 will be better, but, you know, I've learned to now temper my expectations. <laughs> <laughs> but it feels like it's getting better than something else happening. Indeed, oh, indeed. Right. Great. Uh, where can people get hold of you if they want to get in contact? Yeah, I'm pasted all over the internet. Um, easiest place is uh, MikeStopforth.com, um, but I'm also on LinkedIn at MikeStopforth, on Twitter at MikeStopforth, and, uh, yeah, most easily contacted through those channels. And no longer on Facebook. No longer on Facebook. <laughs> that's uh, another story you, entirely. How's that experiment gone for you? I haven't felt a thing. Good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Okay, cool. Super. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for the opportunity. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.